Hi, this is uh, Jeremiah from the Bigfoot Society podcast and sharing some recorded audio I have for you today from the Van Meter Visitor Festival. Um, cool thing is, uh, there is you have a wide variety of speakers, but this year um, we had a talk at the very end about the Big Muddy Monster or the Bigfoot-type creature seen down in southern Illinois is pretty awesome. Uh, This talk was done by Kevin Nelson. Uh, You may know Kevin from the Van Meter Visitor book. Uh, He also does a lot of different things with his buddy Chad Lewis. Um, Good guy, good guy. But he did a great talk, a lot of good information about this cryptid found in southern Illinois. So went ahead and Recorded the raw audio and got his okay to share it with all you listeners. Uh, this is, again, this is raw audio, so you'll hear whispers, people in the background. There's a part where he, you know, has tech issues with his computer, so there's a few minutes downtime. You'll hear dogs barking. Maybe softly, maybe loud, but hey, that's part of the fun of the raw audio. Also, give their book, The Big Money Monster, check it out on their website or on Amazon, however you do that. And um, a lot more information in that book, and so I'm going to check it out as well. We'll do a review on the book and uh, talk to him at the festival today. He's up for coming on the podcast uh, when I give him a him a message on Facebook and uh, we'll have some more questions for him about the Big Muddy Monster. But go ahead and for now, uh, this uh, raw audio is about 40 minutes, a lot of good info in it. So have fun. And um, again, you can always send us a uh, audio message using Anchor. If you have any questions or anything that you want us to discuss, but uh, go ahead and buckle up for the next 40 minutes with Kevin Nelson. Take place, and that's how it got its name. 
it's a pretty tranquil and serene location. It's, it's very uh, hilly, lots of deep swamps, um, lots of places where something that's seven or eight feet tall can potentially have. Again, here's the sign for the big light. One of the more interesting things that I discovered when I was down there doing the preparing research for this is that in southern uh, Illinois, they have some of the northernmost cypress swamps in the entire U.S. I always thought the cypress swamps were only in Louisiana and, and uh, Mississippi and the um, deep, deep south, but they extend as far north as Illinois. Uh, my co-author Chad here is standing next to the boat launch at the Big Lily River. This is actually the location where a few of the sightings took place. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, just shut up. So, let's dive into it. So, when we first looked into this book, in the research, we knew that there was a spike of sightings in the mid-70s. That was sort of the heyday of the big money monster stories. Of course, the early to mid-70s was the reason that there were a whole rash of sightings. And when we first began this project, we thought that was mostly it. We knew there was another case in the 80s that we wanted to look into, but we thought the majority were in the 70s. However, the more we kept digging into the story, the timeline for this just kept getting pushed further and further and further back. And what we found was that these legends, you know, which a lot of people thought started in the 70s, go much, much further. So they go back to 1915. People were already seeing strange creatures in southern Illinois. You know, there was livestock that was being attacked by things that they couldn't explain. Um, here's, here's a headline from 1919. Strange animal uh, attacking livestock. Goats, cows, uh, typically uh, calves were found dead, mysteriously so. And it progressed. 1928 through 29, people were talking about a blood-sucking wolf. It almost has shades of the Chupacabra legends that we hear about today. You know, people were finding, again, animals dead, sometimes appearing like they were drained of their blood, and even hunting dogs. So at first, they were thinking, you know, there's this wolf under this, because what else would be down there preying upon these things? They'll have an occasional bear, but bears are very, very rare in there, and even so, they're, they're a small black bear. And again, here is where they're saying, well, is this a wolf? You know, it's, it's not unheard of, but it would have been very strange for Southern Illinois. Let's move forward to 1942. Now, it's starting to look strange. It's starting to look not just like a wolf or a bear, but people are starting to describe something that's much, much stranger. And this is when they start calling it the thing, for lack of a better term. What people initially were assuming, because of the reports being somewhat upright, ape-like, is they were saying, oh, well, the, the typical excuse you often hear, it must be a circus animal that somehow got away. You know, maybe a gorilla got loose from, from one of the traveling circuses. There's no documentation whatsoever of any of the animals of, of that sort. And you hear this all around the country. You know, whenever there's a Bigfoot sighting back then, anything strange, they're like, oh, it was a, a circus train that got derailed, and all the animals escaped. And that's what we see. But it's kind of far fetched. Again, here you see a headline 1942, Carbondale. 
people are still thinking that it's this loose gorilla. It's probably eight feet tall, about 400 pounds.
police officers that he had to go back later on to retrieve his gun. But he was terrified. He said it did not sound human and it was scary. The next major sighting was the Westwood Hills incident. Randy Freed and Cheryl Black. They were sitting out, it's basically um, like a housing development that was very brand new at the time. And, but it, it butts up to a, a large wooded area that's part of a nature reserve that goes for acres and acres and acres. And while they were sitting on their back porch, they saw this creature. And I walked out in the woods, kind of looked around a bit, and of course they were stunned. You know, what is this thing that just stepped out of the woodland? And they couldn't believe what they saw. These are some of the actual eyewitness sketches that they drew. These are all in the police file. The one here, this is Randy Kreitz's drawing, and this is Cheryl Ray's drawing. Whatever it was that came out. I mean, clearly they're, they're not trained artists, but this is what they were seeing. So, after these two major sightings, it really started becoming an, uh, an event, you could say, in Murfreesboro. Everyone was talking about it at this point, it was starting to become a legend. Here you go again, shaggy creature in Murfreesboro. Monster, not UFO, brings <laughs> the right town. And of course, whenever you have a, a, a rash of settings like this, they call a flap in the cryptozoological world, you get people coming out of the woodworks wanting to hunt these things. So one of the groups that, that showed up was this team of uh, uh, tag guys. They, you know, they, they were actually, two of them were attorneys, one was a newspaper editor, and I believe the other one was a, a hunter. They went down into the swamps south of Murfreesboro, and there was a place called the Scatters. Uh, that's kind of the local term for the area. And they went on a camping expedition for it to look for this thing. And while they were camping in the middle of the night, they heard all these, these trees and they were breaking, and, and, and there was something thrashing about the woods that looked like or sounded like it wasn't very happy to be there. They were, it was the middle of the night and they were freezing cold, so they, they were staying in their tents. In the morning when they went out to check it out, they found all these trees that had been stacked off, you know, at about eye level height. And some of these trees were six, eight inches. It, it hadn't been storming or anything. Just something was just raging through the woods around them to potentially scare them away, which it mostly did. Fast forward to 1988, one of the other major encounters, the, the Bob Ryman encounter. Bob Ryman owned a scrapyard on the edge of Murfreesboro back then. And while he was working there, he was having a lot of trouble with teens breaking into cars and stealing car radios, things like that. So he hired a man as a night watchman to watch the place. And while he was doing this, this thing showed up in his scrapyard and he described again, about seven or eight feet tall, kind of whitish blonde in color. And it was just kind of walking around the, the, the scrapyard, staying in the shadows, and it didn't really want to be seen at the time. He's watching it. And he said the previous part is it was making these strange sounds, almost like it was muttering or talking to itself in this, like, kind of almost a high pitched voice. And he said, you know, seeing this high, or hearing this high voice come out of this massive creature was so strange that it really unsettled him. So he got on the phone, called Bob, Bob came running down, and he saw it too. And the, the watchman was like, should we, should we confront this thing? 
who's armed. He's like, should I shoot it? What should we do? And the cop's like, no, don't shoot it. I think it was meant to anger. He's got a pistol. So they didn't. So what they did is they went inside uh, a steel shed that was on the property. This is some of the shops on the scrap there. They described it as a red glowing eye. It's kind of unusual. Not any natural animals have red glowing eyes. So here's, here's their, uh, again, real, real artistic. <laughs> and with this sketch of what they saw in the scrap there that night. One thing that was really interesting on footnote is they said that it seemed fairly well groomed, the hair, like it wasn't full of, uh, you know, leaves and debris. They said it seemed like from about here down to about the waist, you know, it seemed like fairly nice hair that it would have for the most part. And then once you got below the waist, that's where it was caked in mud, you know, in various degree, um, you know, forest litter and things like that. Another drawing of the creature. This is uh, one that appeared in the newspaper at the time. So they locked themselves in, in this steel shed because they're like, well, you know, we don't think we can hurt this thing, but it might be able to hurt us. And while they were in there, this thing started throwing large rocks at the side of the shed. And they think that it was just kind of playing with them or trying to scare them because they were fully convinced that if this thing wanted to, it could have ripped one of the sides of the shed clean off. I mean, this thing would powerful. Here's a shot of the rock throne. So, around the same time... So I want to take a few minutes out uh, just to share something with you. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a lot more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So just download the app and make a podcast today. It's that easy. All right, back to the action. In the 70s, people were seeing this creature over in Missouri that was called the Missouri Monster, or Mono. So there's always saying going on, and again, uh, Lauren Coleman at the time referred to a lot of these creatures from that part of the region in the swamps and things, abominable slump slops. So that kind of stuff. These are uh, two recent books that just came out this fall. Well, one on the left is Lyle Blackburn's Momo book that just came out. And then two weeks ago, the documentary from Small Town Monsters came out. So there's all kinds of weird stuff happening down the area in the mid 70s. Again, here's Momo compared to Big Money. Momo was very dark, had this shaggy head, like massive mountain of hair around its head. Whereas Big Money was typically seen as more whitish blonde or gray, just to contrast the two together. The other difference is some people describe Big Money as having ears that kind of either stuck out or stuck up. They had some kind of prominent ear, whereas Momo looked more like some kind of 80s rock star for the most part. So, after six years of research, here's a, Linda over here should find this interesting. She had a similar thing happen to her um, before this. So, when we went to the police department, they actually had a file that said, Big Money Monster, 1973. I mean, this was like something that ran out of the X-Files. You think that when you see this kind of thing, that it only happens in the movies, but they don't really do that. 
Some places actually do that. Linda had this happen right when she looked into the beast of Bay in Auckland. They had a file that said werewolf. So, definitely does happen. Here's uh, the file with some of the witness drawings, the photos. And this is all public information. Anyone that wants to can go look at them anytime they want. So, we kept digging. And we heard rumors that people, that there's a lot more sightings that have, that have been publicized, that sightings were still happening, and that evidence perhaps still existed. So, we knew a few people down there. One of them is one of my good friends, Tony Gerard. He's a biologist that teaches down there. And he said that he would keep his, keep his ears open if he hears anything. So about a year, year and a half later, I get a text from him saying, hey, I talked to this woman. She thinks she has something. And I'm like, okay, well, what is something? He's like, she, she thinks or says that she has a plaster cast of big money from the 1970s. So we're like, great. I see this. So Chad and I went down there. The story is real quickly. Her father in the 1970s was out coming home from work late at night. He saw a preacher on the side of the road and it like nothing he'd ever seen before that fit the big money description. And he went home, got uh, his son, they went out there to see if they could see it again. It, it was long gone, they found the footprints. They came back the next day with a Boy Scout team and made plaster casts of his footprints. They also made impressions of the past into another piece of plaster, which is what you see here. So she's been sitting on these in her basement for 40 years. There's a close-up. They even described in the back February 9th, 1975. That's when the impression was made. So, within the book, we get into sort of a larger picture here of what is going on down in Southern Illinois. Why are people having all these weird experiences? And one of the things that we encountered was there's all kinds of creatures down there. It's not just big enough. And so then, is this part of a trend or a bigger picture? So I ran across this book called Weird Egypt. And so for those that don't know, the southern part of Illinois is called Little Egypt. That's what the locals call it. There's a whole bunch of reasons why they, they even named their towns down there after Egyptian cities. Cairo, uh, Illinois, which is a ridiculous pronunciation, Cairo, but that's what they call it. Uh, there's a down there, there's Karnak down there. Anyway, while reading Near Egypt by Jim Jones, he had a theory that because of the fault lines that riddle the area, sort of like a cracked chill, that are constantly under pressure, that are constantly shifting, they're ejecting basically electromagnetic fields at all varying intensities at different times. And then he was like, well, I wonder if there's any correlation. Is there any relationship between these fault lines and all these strange occurrences? So what he did was he made a map of his hometown probably, and he mapped out all the houses in town that had strange stories like, like hauntings and things like that, walls of length uh, that people had reported. And after doing so, after mapping these out on a map, he overlaid that with where the fault lines were running underneath Colgate, and they lined up exactly. He called these paranormal corridors that were running through the town. And so his theory was 
is that this pressure that's going on down there and the, the electromagnetic energy that's occasionally released is what's causing some of these events. There's all kinds of theories on why or how. One of those could be that they've proven that when your brain is subject to high levels of electromagnetic radiation, that you can see things or you know, perhaps hallucinate. So are these people hallucinating or are these high fields instead enabling something to see something that's that's there but they can't normally see? It could go either way. This is little Egypt here, this is you know, a visual of roughly where it's at. Uh, John Keel with the Mothman Prophecies talks about window areas. Typically, they're, they're a lot more localized than this, but some people have theorized that perhaps Illinois, at least the southern tip, especially along these fault lines where they intersect, could be uh, potential window areas. So many other creatures that are popping up down there. How many of you have heard of Enfield Horror? Around the same time, Enfield, Illinois, not too far from Murfreesboro, this thing shows up in town with three legs and saucer-shaped pinkish-red eyes. And so it's uh, hopping around the town and terrorizing people. Here's one artist's uh, version of it, Enfield Horror. Another one. Most of the sightings happen along this, this rail line. This is what it looks like today. This is the gentleman, Henry McDaniel, that saw this creature. He was one of the ones that gave the reports. And when he described it, a lot of people just wrote it off. They're like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He probably saw something, but based on his descriptions, he probably saw a kangaroo. You know, the two legs, and then he mistook the tail for a third, a third leg, or something really close like that. Here's the problem. When he was in the military and serving overseas, he had a kangaroo for a pet. He knew what kangaroos looked like, so highly unlikely that he would mistake what he was very familiar with. Here he is again describing it. These are some of the reports from the time that appeared in the newspapers. Eyes as big as flashlights, three legs, pink eyes. And again, this is where Enfield is in relation to the state. The infant horror wasn't the only one. There's also a creature that later became known as the Tuttle Bottoms monster. Tuttle Bottoms is by Harrisburg. 1963. Deep in the swamps. People are talking about this thing that they keep seeing back there, and then people ask them, well, what did it look like? You know? This time, it wasn't eight like It wasn't three legs with red glowing eyes. Instead, this time, they describe it as a giant anteater-like creature. So again, you start getting stories like, oh, this thing escaped from a circus, it escaped from a zoo, that kind of thing. No evidence of that whatsoever. But multiple people, including a police officer, saw this creature in the swamps that they described as looking like a giant anteater. So while writing the book, I was like, all right, I'm going to use Jim Jones' theory that he applied to Carbondale and see if maybe Harrisburg in the Tall Bottoms lies along with the base anomaly corridors as he described it. So I went through some geological maps, figured out where the fault lines were under Harrisburg. Sure enough, there's a fault line that goes right under the tall bottoms. So is this one of the reasons that people are seeing these things? I don't know. I'm not a geologist, but it's interesting. Again, people say, no, it's an escaped circus animal. You'd think someone would go looking for it at least a little bit if it was. 
So here's uh, our ragtag team in the Tunnel Bottoms. Uh, the one in the puppy blue shirt, that's Tony Gerard. He's the biologist I referred to earlier. And then the other two are, are some folklorists and authors that live down there that kind of assisted us on this case. Um, really good time. This is the Tunnel Bottoms. As you can see, it's, it's just endless marsh and swamps as far as you can see. So a lot of things can hide back there. So what are these things? Some other creatures that, if time for me, I don't know all of them, I can probably speak all weekend about all these things people have seen down there. There's the coal hollow monster, the Mount Vernon monster, the Centurial something, the Moral monster. These are all different towns down there that have their own various legends. Some people say, well, that's gotta be a hoax. You know, if these things existed, people would be seeing them, there'd be, you know, corpses or, you know, whether it's Bigfoot or carcasses, if it's something like a giant alien, people would find these things. Maybe, maybe not. This is a huge area. Down there is the Shawnee National Forest, which is over a million acres of just huge, most swamp hills and woods. It's huge. So people say, oh, well, it's probably a guy dressed up as Bigfoot or a monster, a monster suit of some sort, or perhaps a person in a ghillie suit. We thought about that. Again, it is a possibility, but if you look at all the reports down there of all these posses that were being formed and hunting parties looking for these things, you know, a lot of, probably a lot of drunk guys with guns going out in the woods looking, I'm going to get Bigfoot, I'm going to get the Tall Bottoms monster. Probably not the smartest thing to do to go walking around through the woods dressed as a monster with all these hunting parties in the woods. The other option that people say, well, maybe it's not truly a monster. Maybe what people are seeing are people, just feral people, wild people. Uh, about two weeks ago, when I was in Lexington, Kentucky at CryptidCon, I heard uh, David Politis speak. He's, uh, he's into, um, I'd, I'd say he's into cryptozoology, but he's mostly into mysterious uh, missing person reports. He used to work with the uh, FBI, things like that. Anyway, one of his theories is, is that what people are seeing with Bigfoot isn't actually uh, a plant, a primate. It's actually, they're technically human. They're just a form of feral human that is of a type that we don't know. And that's why when people find hair or, or various DNA samples and have them tested, they keep coming back as human, because they are. And the analogy that he gave is like, this could be a subset of human, like almost like a tribe that is undiscovered. And he said the difference would be, you know, if you have a poodle and you have a mastiff dog, both canines, they're both dogs, but physically and visually, they're going to be very, very different creatures. And that's kind of a comparison he gave between what we, the modern human, and these other perhaps feral humans that could be living in pockets down there. Uh, one of the theories, too, is that perhaps. Prior to European arrival, there were a lot more of these things, perhaps in their own tribes. And that when Europeans arrived, they were susceptible to the same kinds of diseases that a lot of Native Americans are. We, we, knew, we know that prior to when arrival, that there's this whole land was covered with Native Americans and tribes, you know, millions of millions. But walking through the smallpox and various other Western diseases, you know, the vast majority were wiped out fairly quickly within a few hundred years. If the same thing happened to these creatures or feral humans, 
that could explain why they only exist in very small pockets, perhaps Southern Illinois, perhaps Kentucky, perhaps the Pacific Northwest, where people are still seeing these things. So, back to big money and Murfreesboro. Again, it's become this popular legend. It's kind of big, they have a festival now. The Big Money Brewing Company is based out of Murfreesboro. They have their own beer based on the legend. As I was telling Linda earlier today, one of my criteria for when a preacher really makes it big time, when it's a true printing, is when it has a beer name on That's when you know you really made it. So I'm holding out that someday someone will come up with family to visit for beer. So, I think it'll happen. There's a big money porter. It's delicious. And coming, it's right around the corner. If any of you are going to be in southern Illinois, we're having the big money monster brew fest. They celebrate the legend of the monster. Down at the, at the park where the riverboat, where the, uh, the boat landing is, it's a big park. The whole thing fills up with different micro brews and people having fun and live music, all kinds of stuff. And lots and lots of beer. So, uh, kind of wrap it up there, but I think we might have a minute or two for some questions. Uh, five minutes of questions if anyone has anything or comments. It's not technically a fault line, it's more like this 
pressure model has been built up. And a lot of weird stuff happens around that. And even from headless ghost stories to monster stories, I mean, just, it's a, it's a hot, you know, perhaps you can call it, you know, a window area because it's, is it related to the geological formation? I can't say. But it's interesting that you get these clusters around these things. Thanks for listening today, guys. Uh, again, that was Kevin Nelson from the Van Meter Visitor Festival in Van Meter, Iowa, 2019, talking about the Big Muddy Monster. If you haven't already and you're just uh, checking out this uh, podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, go over to Instagram and follow us at, at Bigfoot Society. There's a great content and discussion over there. Um, you'll want to get involved there. It's a good time. And uh, some other links you can check out as well. But, uh, you know, like and uh, subscribe and review the podcast. Give us some uh, good reviews about what you think so far. And um, definitely subscribe to the podcast as well because we'll be coming out with some more uh, content in the next few months. We're getting some interviews revved up again. So, as always, thanks for listening and uh, we'll chat with you next time. Before we go, I'd like to spend a few minutes to talk to you about my friend Pat Flynn and his course, Power Up Podcasting. We've all got a story to tell, 
And what better time than now to start your own podcast? Now, you can start that with Anchor, which is a great tool. But if you want to go to the next level and learn all about podcasting, you should really look into the course Power Up Podcasting. Now, I'll let you know it is an investment. It's about $799, but you're buying it forever. And there's a Facebook group that you join that has great, great knowledge. You'll learn from it. Um, Also, I do get 30% of every purchase of this course. So not only are you learning all about how to make your own podcast and share what you love, but you're also supporting Bigfoot Society, the very, very hefty amount, as you can uh, do with some math there. So if you want to support Bigfoot Society, which you love if you're listening to this, then go ahead, click on the link that you'll see in the description for this uh, podcast. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Have a great night.